Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. So hey, Shannon, how are you this week? I am doing great, Melissa. How about you? I am good. The week has been busy. We're here for episode three. Um, This is becoming a thing now every week. Um, I love it. I want to thank everyone for listening. Yes, thank Um, you. I do want to apologize for episode two. Last week, our audio seemed to be a little up and down. If you noticed it, we're still trying to find our recording space and um, find a permanent spot to do this. And so as we're growing, we are learning. Um, So we just want to apologize for that before we move on to the next. Yes, Melissa will have it after a while. (laughs) Also, um, this is a little bit different of an episode. It's kind of a special episode. Um, We're kind of labeling it as like a listener request because this one was requested to me um, by a listener to do. Um, Actually, it's my brother, Billy, shout out. Oh, man, I was going to say, wow, we actually have a listener. There's Ooh. there's more than one, I've, I've heard. <laughs> um, and so we have a Facebook group, so please join. And if you want to submit a request to us, you can. We have an email. Our official email is oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com. So you can email us with suggestions and uh, tips and critiques and just don't be mean. And <laughs> we'll have fun with it. Um, so this week is a listener request, a little bit different. And um, Shannon's actually going to bring us into that and start us off talking about um, Mr. Herman Webster Mudgett. And that name probably doesn't sound familiar to you, but if you are a fan of true crime and you've heard some of the popular stories, you probably know him as H.H. Holmes. So we're going to get into that soon. Meet the Mudgets. So the Mudgets were a family um, that were the first settlers in the Gilmanton, New Hampshire area. They were devout Methodists, and it had been reported that they were quite strict. Uh, they had five children, and one of these precious children were um, Herman Webster Mudgett. He was born May 16, 1861. His father was known to be a very strict disciplinarian. Um, And so he grew up in a pretty strict household with uh, devout Methodist parents. He was known to be quite smart. He was considered a prodigy by some. He did very well in school. Others picked on him because he was probably the one in the class that got all the answers right, did um, made all the hundreds on tests. and teacher's pet (laughs) yeah probably the teacher's pet and so as a result of that he was not very popular among his um, classmates and uh, peers his age so he was bullied a lot because the other um, kids were jealous and angry and so they just would play pranks on him and and just probably got tired of him being the one who knew it all Um, never had that experience but I think that that's great when someone does <laughs> have that experience, but it's, it's sad that he had to be bullied. And it just shows this was back in 1861 that bullying is definitely not a new concept and, and not new. Um, and probably never going away. Right. It's, that's right. It's human nature. That's right. So good idea to teach our children how to stand up to those who might bully them. Um, one prank went a little too far and perhaps could have possibly been the beginning of a darker, darker awakening for Herman. 
one day on the way to school, he passed by a local doctor's office. Um, and that doctor's office often kept the doors unlocked. He had an irrational fear of the place. So some of his older classmates knew that he feared the doctor's office and um, they decided to have a little fun with him one day. They actually dragged him into the doctor's office and he, they were pulling him, kicking and screaming and struggling. And uh, they didn't stop until he was face to face with a medical skeleton. And it was actually in the corner of a exam room. This almost seemed to cure his um, fear and turned it into maybe a fascination when he saw the skeleton. I guess he'd probably never seen something like that before, Melissa. He actually, he wrote a book. And in his book, he describes this incident with um, his own words. And he explains how the, the, he came face to face with this skeleton. And his, his arms were outstretched as if it was going to attack him. Oh, wow. And then he kind of had a pause moment and then was sort of fascinated by it and, and kind of a curious and, and just wonderment of this skeleton and how it was put together and um, obviously awoke something more sinister in the back of his mind. And so that evidently also played a part in him going to medical school and um, going into the medical field. Um, he graduated from Gilmanton Academy when he was 16 years old. He started teaching in the nearby town of Alton. I can't imagine taking a class from a, a professor or a teacher who was 16 years old. <laughs> I think, you know, I really think kids back then had to work harder and do things in a little bit different way. They were still kids, but I think they just grew up a little bit faster because I know back when my mom was growing up, they had seniors who were 18 that drove their school buses. So mm -hmm. that to me was weird. So maybe it's the same concept. It was just a different time period um, where everything wasn't as readily available. So you had to work a little harder. Um, so that was, so he started teaching and that, but I agree. I wouldn't like it if I had a teacher that was around my age and <laughs> that would be hard to have respect being able to sit there with him. And especially if you knew any of his background and being bullied and, so um, while he was teaching, he met a young girl named Clara Lovering, and they were married on July the 4th, 1878. Uh, so what was that? Maybe 1718 yeah. when they got married. Um, and then they had a son born in 1880, and his name was Robert Lovering Mudgett. So um, then he went on, he quit teaching because he, he said he got bored with that. I imagine just reading through everything, he got bored with a lot of things, which maybe I, I can relate to because I, I get into something, I learn it, I, you know, master it and I'm done with it and I move on to the next. So I, I can kind of get that. Don't worry, folks. We'll have another podcast next week. She won't quit <laughs> yet. So after he got bored, he began working as a store clerk. So in, in a grocery store, right? Um, I think that's what he did. Yeah. In a grocery store. So he grew tired of that quickly and decided he wanted to become a doctor. So he switches gears and heads toward the medical field. And his wife, Clara, at the time, um, supported him. She actually sewed and did kind of odd jobs um, and to totally supported him through medical school. So he goes off and he, at the age of 18, enrolls in the University of Vermont. But after one year, he got bored. Wow. Well, he, got, he was bored fast. I think that I think it's particularly interesting. The reason he got bored at the University of Vermont is because their medical practice didn't focus on um, 
dissection and working on cadavers and getting hands-on into the stuff that he really wanted to learn. Okay. So that's why he switched schools and went to the University of Michigan and was in their Department of Medicine and Surgery. So it sounds like now he was really doing what he was naturally good at, um, chemistry and anatomy were some of his best subjects. So armed with extensive knowledge in both and a knack for being charming and deceiving at the same time, it made a dangerous combination. Okay, so Herman Mudgett has now switched to the University of Michigan. He was under Professor Herdman, and Herdman was the chief anatomy instructor. So um, here Herman got to practice and work with cadavers. While working in the lab, he begins to steal bodies from the school laboratory. He disfigures the corpses and he collects insurance policies that he took out on them. So what he would do would be take an insurance policy out on someone who is living, which, hey, current day identity um, fraud. And he would get an insurance policy and then he would take a corpse from the school and disfigure it because back then they couldn't tell who someone was because they weren't fingerprinting and doing all of that. Um, DNA, all the things that we're used to now was not as prevalent. So he would take the corpse and disfigure it. And then he would say that that living person who had gotten the policy on had actually died. Then he would collect the insurance policy. Um, so that was his way of making money. So he was into uh, identity theft and then insurance fraud. Uh, so he did that and then he graduated after two years in 1884. So for the next couple of years, he travels across the United States. And um, he does, he travels all over practicing, you know, calming people. And this is during a time when he would get into a city, something would happen. Like he would be seen hanging out with a, a young boy and then the boy would disappear and then be found later. And then he would skip town. And he'd go work in a pharmacy and then, you know, give pills to a kid and the kid would die. And then some questions started to happen and he'd disappear again and move to the next. He made his way across the United States, conning, probably practicing his craft, you know, becoming this, this sinister serial, serial killer that he was. And somehow he ends up moving to Chicago. Okay, so he was able to move to Chicago. How about those wives or that one wife or what happened to Clara? Well, Clara, she she stayed um, with her son, Robert, taking care of him. And she would support him um, through a medical school and he would visit from time to time. And then they just lost contact and he just kind of just left her on the wayside. But um, he was a ladies man because he was so smart. He was successful. He was a doctor. He'd you know, been through these good schools he was charming, and so he actually ends up getting married again. Oh, wow. And then again, and then possibly again without ever having to divorce a wife. So he had at least three that we know of. Oh, wow. And so then in January, um, so three of them, and then his last one, it looks like one of his last ones. I don't know what number she was, but her name, um, he married a lady named Georgiana Yoke. But he changed his name, didn't he? Yes. Well, first we have we have Murda. Murda Belk Belknap was also in January. He liked January weddings. Okay. She was in January of 1887. 
and they had a daughter. So he has uh, wife Clara with son Robert, and now he has wife Murda with a daughter. And her name was Lucy Theodate Holmes. Wow. So this was after the name changes. We'll get into that in a second. Okay. Um, but he did marry again. He married um, 1894 in January, uh, Georgiana Yoke. And this is where one of his aliases was um, Henry Mansfield Howard. And so um, that's when he decided, when he gets to Chicago, to change his name. Okay. Because we don't know how many people truly died at the hands of Herman Mudgett. Um, but in August of 1886, that's when he gets into Chicago. And he doesn't want any of his past dealings to impede upon his new life that he started to do. So he decides to change his name. So now he is Henry Howard Holmes. So Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. And he's considered to be America's first, one of the first serial killers? Considered. When you search, that's, that's all you hear is he's the first serial killer. But we know... Um, Records weren't kept very well. The story's so old, it gets changed over time. Details get exaggerated. It's hard to to pinpoint the exact truth. And I'm sure there was probably ones before him. And there's plenty more after, but he's considered to be one of the first. Yes. So Chicago at the time was recovering from a huge fire. This made it a great time for aspiring self-made millionaires to flourish. It was a great industrial revolution. Job seekers from around the world flocked to start businesses. Um, a lot of real estate development, and then Chicago was on its way becoming a booming financial city. There was a little neighborhood called Inglewood that was south of Chicago, and on the corner of Wallace and 63rd Street, there was a drugstore owned by Dr. E.S. Holton. Holmes I ended up getting a job there and proved to be an excellent employee. Holton, the owner of the drugstore, was older and suffering from cancer. So his wife minded the store along with Holmes's help. Um, so Holmes had worked in it for so long, he ended up purchasing the store from uh, Miss Holton with an agreement that she could live above the store even after her husband passed away. So she basically had lifetime rights to live above the store. Um, so Dr. E.S. Holton ended up passing away from natural causes. We believe. So it said. <laughs> yes. That was what was in uh, written ink. And then the wife disappeared shortly after selling the shop to Holmes. Hmm. Um so the store provided Holmes with a steady cash flow and gave him time to pursue other business ventures. He would often buy different goods and resell them. He even started selling uh, mineral water cure-all tonic that was made from the city's water supply. So he just took bottled water and said, take this. <laughs> and it'll cure everything. So it was the cure-all tonic. Um in 1888, he secured a lease for the property across the street, and that was actually on the southwest corner of 63rd and Wallace. Um, so this is the important property. This is a huge property. It takes up the entire city block. And then here is where he constructs his own fantasy. He has, you know, cash flow coming in from the drugstore. He's in a new town, has a new name. So now is where he starts to construct a custom building, and it was built for one thing, murder. 
So we have this massive construction project going on in this town of Chicago. This building is huge. It's a block wide. People every day would, you know, walk by it and look in awe. And they were wondering what the world's going there. And the outside became this beautiful facade. They would call it the castle because it just looks so you know, magnificent and the city's rebuilding and it's just an exciting time wondering, you know, what's going there. So he, you know, was a businessman first. So he liked to save money and he liked to do things on the cheap side. Um, so his efforts to keep the design a secret and to avoid paying as little as possible, he constantly changed workers. He was always firing workers. He was hiring new ones um, you know, he would say their work was unsatisfactory. He would um, dismiss them and then he'd get new ones without paying. And so he's able, he had such a high turnover that the usual aspects that would usually red flag under normal circumstances, like building staircases to nothing or brick walls behind doors, nobody really caught on that this was in a very unusual house. So like one example he used credit and purchased this huge walk-in bank vault, like this humongous vault. So he installs it during construction and then builds walls around it. Oh, wow. So it's part of the room. So the door is the door to the vault. And then he defaults payments because he didn't want to pay for it. Oh, so okay. when the bank tries to repossess it, they can't come and get it because it's attached to his house. It's part of his house. Oh, wow. And so he tells them if you you're welcome to get it and take it out. But if you damage my house in the process, I'll sue you and I'll win. So they so they just dropped it. So he just has this bank vault in his in his house as a room. And then if he keeps firing those who are working on it, nobody's going to ever really know what his intentions are because new people are coming on the scene all the time. Right. So it's constant, constant turnover and changing. And only he has the, the blueprints to what's going on. So no one really knows exactly the intent to this building. Well, thank you, H. H. Holmes, for making it hard <laughs> on the rest of us to have to get blueprints and, and all and permits and build. <laughs> yes, and all kinds of red tape. We salute you. <laughs> so there were three levels to this castle. So on the bottom level, street level wise, you had shops, you had jewelry stores. There was a pharmacy, a barber shop, restaurants, blacksmith. You know, this was when. You know, people could walk by, how exciting, stop and get something to eat. Lots of foot traffic. Oh, wow. Um, so then the third level, the second and third level house, large rooms and apartments. So like rented office spaces, um, homes had a, a zone bedroom was on the third floor. They were just um, rooms. But the thing about these rooms is this: the two, those two were the sinister levels of the house. So you had unlucky guests and former employees. You know, they witnessed unlike anything anyone has ever built before. So staircases that led to nowhere. You had airtight rooms with no windows that guests would sleep in and in homes could control a knob and oh. he could turn it and it would shoot gas into the room. So it'd be in like a gas chamber, asphyxiation chamber. Okay. So if he didn't got tired of a particular guest or someone he was trying to get rid of, he'd just have them stay in that room and then just turn on the gas. Okay. And then he would watch through the peepholes of the doors as they suffocated themselves. Oh, wow. Or heard them kind of clawing and screaming and well, things he like sent, that. Or? He sent one of his um, 
personal assistants into the vault to get some paperwork or something. And as he did, he shut the door behind her. Oh, wow. And his, his office was next door, and you could literally hear them scream. Oh, man. And was... then there were claw marks on the, on the walls where they were trying to claw and get their way out. Evil, evil. And most of the rooms were soundproof. These people would be screaming and screaming and screaming, and no one, no one could hear them. Wow. And people were just downstairs eating their dinner at the restaurant and have no idea what was going on upstairs. Mm. So in the there were trap doors in the floor that could be triggered and shoots in the walls that you could drop you know bodies down and they would end up going to the basement. And so the basement is a whole nother story. That is where you know the primary function for this house essentially is just a murder factory of some sorts. So he had three main preferences for getting rid of the bodies. So you had chutes and trap doors that made it easy to get them to the basement without the suspicion of residents in the third floor or disturbing stuff that was going on in the shops on street level. Wow. So he just made it easy as possible. So once I was going to say, I, you know, growing up, I always wanted secret passageways in a house <laughs> and things like that. Just because innocently as a child, you just think, oh, that sounds like fun. But when you read something like this as an adult, you're like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy how well you see those movies that have the 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 books where you click the bookshelf and it spins around and you have this you know different room or and kind of cool to get from one area of house to another by you know shooting through this passageway and yeah Yeah. this this is a whole new new thing but what we have to remember is that this is a very small percentage and the rest of us are that's okay to think things like that and (laughs) want to live in secret passageway houses this is just an evil person well, okay, he, so tell us. Well, he had in his, in his bedroom, he would have alarm bells. Like if you were a guest and you were staying at, at his hotel, because he did renovate it for the World's Fair as a hotel. So we had lots of people coming in and out. We'll get to that. Um, if you were curious and you just wanted to leave your room to go check things out, a bell would sound off and he'd know that you'd left your room. Wow. So then he would go out and you'd all would get caught in this maze in the middle of the, the building that went nowhere and he could sneak up behind you and and take you out without you even realizing what had happened wow that's that's just scary to think about mm-hmm. it's it's I, it's insane so you were telling us about the basement was like a whole new level of evil and where the primary function for everything was like his i guess it was the main spot of where the action took place. I yeah. Guess. So yeah, the basement was a whole new level of, of evil. So he had three main preferences for getting rid of bodies. So the shoots and trap doors bring them down to the basement. So in the basement, um, he could kind of process each body. And that I really hate to use that term, but so he had acid vats, quick lime pits, um, industrial crematoriums. Wow. He would, you know, coming from medical school, sometimes he would strip the bodies, clean the bones, you know, polish them up, mount them on, on brackets, and sell them to the medical schools as medical skeletons. Oh, wow. Where other people could learn from them. And they had no idea that these were actual, you know, Victims. people. Yeah, from from him. So, and then um, he was also a doctor. Mm-hmm. And so he had an area set up where he would perform illegal abortions. Oh, man. Mm. And a couple of his mistresses ended up um, having that fate. Okay. Because they would get pregnant and demand marriage, and he already had the three wives. So he right. decided that, oh, I'll marry you, but you have to agree to an abortion. And they would, but they would never make it out. 
Gotcha. And then, like, a week later, he would sell a new skeleton to a medical school. So it was just it a constant like turnover. I wonder where he's getting all the skeletons from, you know, that they would question I, it. I would. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but apparently, you know, it's a different time then. So it's just, I can't imagine. He also sold organs on the black market. So if he ran across the body and things were in good shape and he could get away with a kidney or, you know, whatever it was, he would just sell it on the black market. Wow. That's just scary. Yes, definitely. <laughs> scary evil. So perhaps, you know, he would have continued and got away with a lot more if it wasn't for one man entering his life. So in 1889, he met Benjamin Freelon Peitzel. So he was traveling and trying to, to secure steady work to support his wife, Carrie, and their five children. Wow. So, yeah, under the pressure to provide for a large family. And he did have a, he had an inability to maintain a steady source of income. He was, you know, job hopping. He couldn't keep steady work. And then he would get depressed. So then he started to drink heavily and he became an alcoholic, okay. um, which is problematic when you're trying to, to work and make money. And yeah, especially for five kids and your wife. Yes. So he answered an ad for construction on a large building. And so there he meets Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. And so together they would become partners in crime. They kind of hit it off and got along really well. And Holmes is trying to manage all these guests coming in and out, you know, his murder factory, plus the businesses he has on the side. He's got the drugstore. He's got a lot going on. So he kind of maybe needed somebody to kind of help take over some of those duties. Well, and two, knowing that the Mr. Um, Peitzel was desperate, he probably knew he had something he could probably hold over him. I'm thinking. Yeah, definitely some sort of control. Like yes. I'll give you income for your family. You help me out here. And if you go astray, this stops. And right. so he had tried for so long to support his family. And then finally something was probably steady that it just, he stayed and he took on, you know, to know more of his darker secrets right. and got closer to him. Cause Pite, uh, and Holmes, I mean, he got really close to their family. He would even take Paisel's kids to the fair Oh, okay. so we have the World's Fair in Chicago, which was a really huge, huge deal. And it um, it went from May to October in 1893. So you had 27 million people from all over the world. United States flocked to Chicago for this World's Fair. Wow. And it was just a massive meeting of culture. You had the very first Ferris wheel. You had you know, Harry Houdini, who was doing, you know, magic presentations and all these paintings and Viking ships from Norway. It was just a really place to be at that time. Did you say that was where the first penny was flattened? Yeah. Then you go to like all the tourist attractions and you, you flatten a penny out that has a design on it. That's where that that's cool. got started. Okay. So that's, wow. that's kind of a cool little fact there. Um, so it was a big thing. People would take out mortgages on their house and cash in life insurance policies and just to travel and, and say that they made it there wow. and like not sure how they would even make it home. And some people just ended up staying in Chicago because they just, they lost everything they had just to get there. Wow. Hmm. So it was a very, very big thing. Huge. So then he would take the Mr. Peitzel's family to the fair. And then I guess people trying to find a hotel room would, yeah, he would, would find, he would, well, he'd take the kids and the kids would kind of lure in, you know, older women and he would pick out these elderly ones who kind of flaunted their wealth that they were at the World's Fair and then he would invite them back to his 
hotel oh. to spend the night. Okay. And then probably they wouldn't make it home. <laughs> and so it kind of went, I mean, he had 27 million people coming in over a few months. So he had kind of his pickings of who, who to choose from. There's just victims just everywhere. And probably found very vulnerable people. Of course. And so it's just, I just can't imagine how many people ended up staying at his little hotel and just not being able to make it out. Let's just make it out alive. No. So over, you know, over the time managing several different business dealings, both legal and illegal, you know, Australian began to untie their friendship between Holmes and Peitzel. So late at night, employees often heard them arguing over money. You know, Peitzel's drinking got worse. You know, it was becoming a problem. He knew all the stuff that was going down at the castle. You know, he, it was apparent that he may, you know, mumble this while he's in a drunken state somewhere. Something might slip out. And so he had lost his usefulness to Holmes. Because drunk people talk. Yes. <laughs> and more often than not, it's usually the truth that comes yes. out. And so, you know, it's time the for him. Only time they can tell it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was time for him to, you know, come up with a plan that would, not only make him more money, but gets rid of his worrisome accomplice as well. Okay. So this is when this insurance fraud murder plot begins to, to thicken with Peitzel. And so it's kind of confusing, so bear with us. So Holmes, he instructs Peitzel to take out a large insurance policy on himself and make his wife, Carrie, the beneficiary, because that's what normal spouses do. You get a life insurance policy, you make your spouse the beneficiary, so that if something happens to you, your family's taken care of. Okay. And so Fidelity Insurance Company. So it's located in Philadelphia. So this is where they decided to make this go down. Okay. So the plan was to go there and fake Peitzel's death. Okay. So then he told Peitzel that he was going to get a cadaver and use it in this fake accident and then say it was Peitzel and collect the insurance money. Which would be easy because Holmes has already done that in previous times when he was at the university to make money. Yeah. Change, alter the body and, you know. So Peitzel, he's to hide out and he thinks everything's taken care of. And then when, once the money is paid, the policy's paid out, they would split it. Okay. And so having the experience in college and, you know, he did the exact same thing. Peitzel kind of trusted him. Like, Hey, you've done this before. You know what you're doing. It's worked for you before. You, you're a businessman, you know, this is what we're going to do. I'm on board. So he was on board with this, this plan. Well, and two, he was always desperate because he had to take care of his family. Yes. So I'm pretty sure he held that over his head too. Yes. Um, so in November of 1893, after the excitement of the fair is over, you know, it ended in October. So there's no more victims coming in and out. Fair, fair is gone. They leave Chicago. So for months, they traveled all over the United States, you know, committing fraud, petty theft as they went, kind of honing their skills as to where they're going to finally settle down and do this. Because it also looks suspicious if you take out an insurance policy and then immediately something happens. That's true. So they're, they're probably biding their time to let that policy sit for a while so it wouldn't throw up any red flags. And so in July of 1894 in St. Louis, Holmes attempts to scan, scam another drugstore owner. So he tries the same thing kind of that he did back in Chicago. But it doesn't buy. He doesn't work. Something happens. Not sure if he was just off that day, if his charm wasn't hitting it. But he ends up getting arrested. Oh, wow. And put in jail. 
Is this, this looks like maybe the first time he's ever been arrested for anything? Right. The okay. first time he has ever gotten arrested for anything. It has nothing to do with, you know, the murder and all that going on. This was strictly defrauding. Okay. He was trying, he was trying to fraud somebody and he got caught. Okay. So he's behind bars now. And so while he was in jail, he befriends a well-known outlaw. So this, this guy is Marion Hedgebeth. He's actually, he has, he has a name like the handsome bandit. He has a whole nother story, but oh, we wow. won't get into that now. But this guy, his name is Marion Hedgebeth. And so I don't know why Holmes decides to tell him about his insurance scam and what he plans to do, but he just must feel like talking and didn't want to be alone. So he befriends this guy and tells him all about the plan with, with Peitzel. And he asks him for a recommendation. Hey, I need a good lawyer who'll help me cash out this insurance policy. Do you have any names? And he's like, I do, but, and so he strikes a deal with this, this outlaw and he agrees to pay him $500 for the name. Okay. And he says, when I cash this policy out and things are good, I'm going to send you the money. So he's like, all right, man, deal. It's done deal. And so, you know, <laughs> Georgiana Yoke, his wife, bails him out. Of course, he probably told her some lie because she had no idea why the real reason why he was in there or let alone what he was doing at his murder castle. I don't know where she, if she just lived there and she had no idea. I know. Or... I was thinking, what <laughs> happened while he's traveling with the murder castle? Like, did he shut it down for a few months? I guess maybe during the wintertime. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know. No words fair. Let's close it on and take a travel. I couldn't find anything about that. But <laughs> so they're, they're traveling around. He gets thrown in jail. That happens and he gets out. And then um, they finally make it to Philadelphia. Okay. So now they, they set up shop. They get a building leased. And then Peitzel tells his wife about the scam. Okay. And she, she was reluctant at first. Like, um, this is not a good idea. Um, like any normal person would say. Yes. You know. <laughs> this, this is not cool. And he finally explains, like, no, you, you know, listen, hey, he's done this before. Like we, we got it. We're good. And we've got we'll five be set. We'll we be set. We won't have to worry about anything. So she's like, you know, fine. Now I'm on board. If you can promise me that this is gonna work out like you say it is, I'm on board. So one month later, he sets up shop as a, a patent um person. So he has a client come that wants to um, go over a patent and the office is empty. And so he goes upstairs to search for Perry because he actually, he sets up shop as B.F. Perry. So, so now, he, now Paisal has changed his name to B.F. Perry. Okay. I know that gets a little bit confusing. And so this client goes to find B.F. Perry. And he goes upstairs and, in search of him and he finds him dead in the office. Okay. And so the body is actually Paisal. Holmes really did kill Paisal. Okay. And... Claimed it was BF, BF Perry. Gotcha. And so they're not sure how he did it, but some sort, he may have used chloroform because that's what they smelled in the system at the autopsy. His blood alcohol level was high. Obviously, he was an alcoholic. He had those problems. Um, not exactly 100% sure how it was done, but because um, at the time, there's no test to determine certain trace chemicals were left in the body. Okay. So because the odor and the color and just the sheer amount that was there in his stomach, they immediately recognized it, you know, in the, in the stomach contents. Okay. So now um, in order for this policy to be paid out, the body has to be positive, positively identified by Holmes and a family member. So now uh -huh. he needs a family member of Peitzel's to come and say, this is Peitzel. 
but they're going to be believing that it's someone else because they were going to fake the death. Right. Like okay. he had burned his face. Like he had disfigured them. Um, you know, you can't do fingerprintings because we haven't gotten that far yet. Um, the main thing were dental records and um, probably physical identification, like someone looking and saying, hey, yes, that's such and such. So that's why they needed a direct family member. Gotcha. So Carrie and three of her children are too sick to travel. They can't go anywhere. So they have a lot of stuff going on. Okay. And so the oldest is 17 and she has to stay behind to help take care of Carrie and the three youngers that are sick. So she sends Alice, who's 15, to travel with Holmes to help identify the body. So she's sending her 15-year-old with Holmes to go travel and she's to identify basically her father, I use in quotes, because they are under the impression that this is not Peitzel. Right. That Peitzel is underground waiting for a safe time to come out and they can all reunite. And so Carrie, the wife, is probably still believing this is her husband, that he's not dead, and that Benjamin is still alive, which is her husband. And so he's just hiding out like they had talked about. Right. Okay. And so the daughter, I'm wondering if they had to tell her I don't you know, know. what was going on or if she just innocently. I think she just went along with it. It really wasn't. I didn't get a good take from her perspective if she knew exactly what was going on or not. Okay. Um, but obviously she felt comfortable traveling with home. So they travel. They make it there, and they examine the body and determine that it is Peitzel or B.F. Perry for the sake of the insurance policy. It's ruled an accidental death, despite the, the suspicions of the chloroform. So Holmes, he puts Alice up in a hotel in Indiana. So he sets her up in a hotel, and he travels back to Carrie. And Carrie, I imagine, is probably pretty shocked that it's just him, and because not. she sent her daughter away, and now you're not coming back with her. It's just you. And he tells her that, no, no worry. She's with Peitzel. I left her with her father. Everything is good. But now, you know, she's safe. I need to take two more of your children to go with them. And we're going to bring them to their father. So now her two other children, Nellie and Howard, leave home with Holmes. So he already took one child. Now he's taking two more. And he told her that it would be suspicious for you to be traveling with all of your children. For insurance reasons. That's the reason that he gives her. But yeah, I guess he's he's taking them so that he has kind of um, a ransom thing going in a way where she's going to have to give him the money if she gets paid the money. Right, because she was the beneficiary. So now okay. he, he has leverage over her. He's right. got the kids. Okay. Even though she thinks they're hanging out with, with Benjamin and everything is safe. And when we can all be together, we're going to you know split this money and go about our way. Right. And so the insurance company actually pays out the policy. Okay. And then unfortunately he actually swindles much of it back from her because he's having to run her children around and orchestrate this elaborate plot and, you know, move them around and keep them safe. So she's just funneling the money right back to, to homes without any idea of what really was going on. And so, you know, he, she leaves home. So she's traveling to meet up with them and he's orchestrating, telling them where to stay, where to go. And at one point, he actually houses both of them, like, blocks from each other. Oh. Like, they could walk right around the corner and see each other. But they never do. They have no idea that they're that close. And they're just back and forth, back and forth. And don't you know that he's loving that because he's, it's kind of like a game to him that he's playing, knowing that they're that close but can't connect. Yeah, and Alice, she had written a bunch of letters to her mother. 
and she would write, oh, we're traveling. We're in, you know, Detroit now, or we're here. And it's been two weeks since I've wrote to you. And at one point she mentions Howard's no longer with them. And so now we know Peitzel's dead. So now the little boy is missing. Where is he? And Holmes never mails those letters. Okay. So she thinks she's writing to her mom, telling her what's going on, and they're never getting sent. So it's just, just chaos. So with all this happening, he forgets to do one important thing. Marion Hedgebeth in the jail. Ah, he didn't pay. He didn't pay him. He kept the money. He he just forgot to send that $500 that he promised him. Wow. So Marion gets wind of this murder that has happened in the paper. He sees that that B.F. Perry in Philadelphia has has died and it was an accident. And he hears about it and he realizes he hasn't gotten his money. He wants his money. And hey, I helped this guy. He needs to pay me. Exactly. So he actually calls the insurance company and uh, like, Hey, guess what? Tells them about what happened. Yeah. So he, he tells about Holmes and his plot. And so then the, um, I guess the insurance company starts to investigate. Yes, they do. Okay. So we are working with, he started out born Mudget, changed his name to Holmes. So far he's been able to do all of these crimes and not be captured until when he was trying to commit a fraud in, was it St. Louis? And he ended up in jail. And so now we got Marion Hedgepeth, who's turned H.H. Holmes into the police because he didn't get his payout. Well, into so, the insurance company. Into the insurance company, which is going to go and investigate it. And then Pinkerton's detective agency um, gets on board. And so it's, it's funny that one thing, that $500, after he's worked all these years to hide so much, gets him in trouble. But mm -hmm. It's like we said, you, you do the crime and it's going to catch up with you. Um, so it's catching up with him. All right. So they, um, the Pinkerton Detective Agency was nationally accredited and their motto was, we never sleep. They had a reputation of tracking down fugitives from one end of the country to the other. They were also the inventor of the mugshot, uh, which I thought was cool and compiled a registry for caught offenders. Um, and didn't you say, did they do something else? Were you saying? Well, they, they had a, like stopped an assassination plot for Lincoln and they, oh, wow. they have done a bunch of stuff. Like they were the go-to people. If you needed to hunt somebody down, you would go to them. They were the best of the best. That's cool. So on November 17th, um, Holmes was arrested in Boston in 1894. He was put on trial for attempting to fraud the insurance company. He pled guilty to the insurance fraud, but insisted that Peitzel committed suicide. Um, so he's still trying to play the story up. Yeah, he's saying, yeah, yeah, insurance fraud, that's my thing. <laughs> I yeah. had nothing to do with the murder, murder part. <laughs> so Carrie, which was Peitzel's wife, having heard this, now wants to know where her other three children are. So remember, he had been moving, supposedly moving the children around and having her kind of follow but she never reached her children. Um, so Holmes kept changing his story every time he was interviewed. A detective started going through Alice's letters. That was Carrie's daughter who had written those letters. And they were in Holmes's possession because he never mailed them back to Carrie um, and started to backtrack the locations that Alice wrote about. After spending many months and traveling all over trying to replicate the route that Holmes took, he did, in fact, find the location of um, Alice's three children. He found their bodies, which is very sad that, um, that that was the outcome. 
So by now, people realize that Holmes is something more than a con artist. On July 19, 1895, Chicago police entered Holmes's castle, and none of the policemen were prepared for the horrors that were hidden inside. Uh, during his trial, he claimed that he was innocent. He even fired his <laughs> counsel and tries to represent himself. So he, he's thinking he is so smart that he can just do whatever he wants. But <laughs> that didn't go so well. So he had to bring his counsel back the next day. When Carrie, He just gave him a day off. Yeah. He just <laughs> gave him a break from his um, psychosis. So when Carrie takes the stand and breaks down about her children and her husband, the entire courthouse was in tears. Everyone. Everyone except for H.H. H. Holmes. Um, so Georgiana Yoke. She is his wife. She arrives. Um, and then Holmes actually breaks down in tears in front of his wife, thinking he will gain her sympathy. Uh, and that does not work. Well, with a lot of those those serial killers and the, the mentality is they don't know how to react to normal situations with the appropriate emotion. There's something that's broken. Right. And so he got that from Carrie's testimony when she's crying and upset getting everybody upset that hey that's what you're supposed to do that worked for her maybe it'll work for me and of course it backfires and then he just seems like he's completely crazy because you know yeah you got melissa <laughs> with the psychological profile good job so yeah he was trying to work his um magic on his wife and it, it didn't work at all he was found guilty and sentenced to death to pay for all of his um heinous crimes and after he was sentenced to death there was no escaping it he began to talk to anyone that would listen so now he's wanting to get his story out he's still wanting he's kind of reliving the fantasies again by telling exactly what happened to those victims before it was i'm innocent i'm innocent i'm innocent well now you're gonna die anyway so might as well just tell you exactly what i did and he so, probably enjoyed a little bit of that because yeah. he actually wrote a book and then he began confessing to everything he was ever linked to um, and everything he thought he had accomplished. 27 murders total he confessed to. But when he was on the gallows before he died, he claimed that he had lied and fabricated the whole book, even though there was evidence to what he had done. Um, so he was hanged on May the 7th, 1896 knowing what one could do after death to a body, Holmes wanted to ensure that he was intact and he wanted to deter grave robbers. Uh, I guess he didn't want anybody to treat him like he had treated <laughs> others. So he insisted that he be covered in concrete before being buried. This was carried out uh, and it took, actually it took 13 men to slide his coffin into the grave. And when they did that, it tumbled into um, and flipped over upside down uh per perhaps a sign where he resides which is on the opposite side of <laughs> eternity that he went probably he's facing the wrong side of eternity now <laughs> so uh, i don't know whose decision it was to say yes you can be buried in concrete like why go through the trouble well i mean it's neither here or there it's done but i i would think no you cannot you don't get that privilege well, and I think, yeah, he shouldn't even have any rights to what is done to his body afterwards. Um, that, I mean, why did he even get a choice, you know? And then they had to get 13 men. He shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I can imagine where he probably 
is, which is sad, amid rumors that he, okay, because so this I thought was kind of interesting um, that he escaped his hanging and, you know, people thought maybe that there was another body involved and that he really wasn't the one who was um, hanged. And so his family actually, yeah, his great grandchildren, his great grandchildren exhumed his body in 2017. I mean, that's just what, three years ago? Oh, four now. Last year didn't even feel like a year. <laughs> so four years ago, um, to determine if that was really him that was buried. But there, you know, there had been family rumors that he got a cadaver to be hanged, like we mentioned just a second ago. And like fled to what, South South America. Mm-hmm. But there was no, you couldn't I, find anything. I didn't. The, I looked to see if I could find out what, whether if they had done tests and if it was, in, you know, conclusive. And I couldn't find anything other than it was an article actually in Rolling Stone that they had dug him up. Okay. So um, I don't know if their just DNA was too degraded, if they um, had settled it and it was him and it wasn't newsworthy that it wasn't. Um, but I was unable to come to a conclusion. So he actually died or was hung before his 35th birthday. Um, so he was very young, yeah. which is and had multiple wives and just but you know what it was just struck me as really kind of funny and ironic his family you said maybe the article that you found was in rolling stone and he was actually in concrete <laughs> and flipped over so i guess we could say Holmes rolling. was a rolling stone <laughs> that's the story of h.h H. holmes one of america's first serial killers um hope you enjoyed that i had a good time talking about it Remember, I'm Melissa with my friend Shannon, and we're old-time crime gals. You can hit us up on our Facebook group. Um, this was a listener suggestion, so thanks, Billy, for that. You can email us at oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com. Be sure you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you listen for free. And just a reminder, do a crime, and it'll catch up with you in time. And we'll talk about it. Chicago, Chicago, he murdered in Chicago.